This special monthly UBU episode on hashtag Black Mental Health is sponsored by Janta Neuroscience and supported by The Painted Brain, a California peer-run organization. Well, hello, hello, hello to Unapologetically Black Unicorns, hashtag Black Mental Health. This is a really, really special episode. I don't have one people, one people, I don't have one person, (laughs) but I actually have two. See what happens when you're unapologetically Black unicorn. You don't even know how to talk about people because we're unicorns. So I'm just so, so fortunate to have Kalechia Bozo and Lorenzo Lewis here today takes a village for us to think about our communities and our community's Black mental health. So before we get into it, I'm going to ask each of you to introduce yourself. I don't do bios, and I will start with Kalechi. Sure. Thanks, Karis, for having me um, back. I'm Kalechi Bozo. I'm the co-editor of Leap Into Patient Voices from Radical Mental Health. I am a Black coach, a peer supporter, and someone who has survived a suicide attempt. And I believe Black mental health is so important to talk about. So I'm really excited to be here and talk about that with you. Great. And Lorenzo? Absolutely. Well, I'm Lorenzo Lewis, founder and spokesperson for the Confess Project. I'm super excited to be here and, and look forward to sharing more about the work that we do across California and also across the country. Amazing. So this is going to be a really, really interesting conversation. And when I say interesting, I mean power-filled. And I actually want to start with how each of you got into the work that you're doing. So Kalechi, you talked about being um, a suicide attempt survivor, but you didn't just say that. You said, I am a Black coach. I am a suicide attempt survivor. So what does that mean when you say it that way? I mean that I've claimed this identity. I'm, I'm not, I don't have shame about who I am and where I've been and what's brought me here. So as a Black woman who dealt with suicidal ideation and other things like an attempt, I just felt like I was the only person dealing with this. So I want to one, uplift that that's not true, but the reason I came to this work was because I didn't see people who look like me, whether it was in the systems I was supposed to be being helped in or actually in the program, there was the mental health conversation, but there wasn't the black mental health conversation. So it always felt like I was having a mental health experience, but without the cultural component of it. And what does that mean to have these thoughts and feelings um, as someone who's also dealing with racism? And, you know, we weren't talking about that in any of the group settings I was part of, any of the support I was getting. So I think when I say it like that, it's because I'm going to claim all of the intersecting identities I have. Right, right. And that is so powerful. And I think I've said this every single episode, representation matters. Representation matters, really does. So Lorenzo, when you talk about the Confess Project, talk to us a little bit more about what is that and how did you even come up with this idea? Well, you know, I always start off that, you know, I was I was born to an incarcerated mother in, in Newark, New Jersey. And, you know, my mother and father, they, they had a very difficult time parenting. And I believe a lot of that was because of their own mental health, their own well-being. And I think um, also just coming from coming from the South and coming from poverty. And so my my narrative is, is shaped into that. And, and essentially, I was incarcerated at the 
at the age of 17. And so when you take my personal experiences, being diagnosed with depression, being a black man who's been a part of the criminal justice system and narrowly escaping that, right? You have to address um, well-being and you have to address mental health and you have to address trauma-informed care. And so essentially that's what the Confess Project does. I was grateful after my release to begin working in behavior health, you know, as a direct service provider for about 10 years. And uh, that was a little bit after my release. I was around about you know 21, very early starting the field. And that was marrying both of those, my recovery, my personal and my professional journey into what the Confess Project is today, which is a national ecosystem, uh, a mental health awareness movement for Black men and boys between the ages of 6 and 35, essentially training barbers, using barbershops as a mental health staple across the country. And so that's the work that, that we do. And, and um, you know, and that's the work that I've been a part of. And when we think about some of the things you were talking about, both of you, actually, these conversations are not naturally happening, I think, in any community, but specifically in the Black community, how are we, or maybe how are we not talking about our Black mental health? And, you know, the work that you're doing seems to provide access um, and accessibility. And I don't want to use the word normalizing, but certainly making it something that we can talk about because we're out there talking about it. So Kalechi, when you started your, your work in this area, how did you enter in and who were you helping and how are you doing? I mean, I know you from peer support up North in California. So how did you kind of decide this is the place where you wanted to be to help other people? Yeah, you know, I was actually in one of the many places where I've been hospitalized several times. That's been part of my story is dealing with hospitalizations. And during one of my stays, I actually saw a Black woman talk about her lived experience and talk about the things that were important to her. And it was the first time I heard about the word peer. And I was like, what is this peer? what is this? Because I was immediately drawn as like someone who looks like me, someone who also has a similar experience and someone who's on their path to recovery. And it wasn't, you know, I was, I was open to hearing feedback from therapists and I definitely appreciated that support, but there was something about someone who had went, had gone down a similar road and how they're still on that journey. And I just felt so inspired by that. So I felt so inspired by that. I was living in Georgia at the time split my time between New York and Georgia. I was living in Georgia at the time. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to follow this peer recovery movement. I started looking up and Googling things. And I heard about California's Prop 63. And I heard about the fact that they were actually having people with lived experience, all these words I've never heard about, like a consumer. I was like, who are these people? But essentially people who have been there, who have whether received a diagnostic label or have lived experience of a mental health condition or a substance use or co-occurring substance use challenge were actually supporting other people on their pathway to recovery. And I was like, I'm going to pack all my bags. My mom was like, let's do it. Let's drive across the country to California with pretty much no ties and see if someone, some community-based organization will hire me. So that's, I mean, that's how I was drawn. And I actually, um, my first job was at Peers. So it was Peers Envisioning Engaging in Recovery Services based out of Oakland. And I got to tell you, I think I applied for like four jobs there. I think I was always applying and they were like, finally, like, okay, we're going to hire this person because she's always been our waiting room. But I was connected to the peer movement and I was so 
amazed that there was a whole community of people that I had never heard of in my years of seeking help years. I mean, I'm talking about like, I was trying to get help since I was a young person. So I had never heard about a peer model. And it just was really life changing. I mean, I can definitely say more, but that's how I got over here to California. That's totally powerful. And it's so funny. It's like, yeah, let's just get in the car and drive. But that's so cool that your mom said, let's get in the car and drive you know, and the both of you took this adventure and here you are doing above and beyond, like even where you started. It's really quite amazing, I think. And amazing in this way is that, you know, when I think about our Black mental health and our Black communities, how do we shorten the time between seeing other people who look like us who are going through the similar experience? And that's what makes me think, Lorenzo, about the power of the barbershop, because who doesn't go to a barbershop? Like I even go to a barbershop on occasion when I have to get my little undercut taken care of. Like I'll even be in a barbershop and the barbershop is home, you know? So how did you even think about this idea of taking people who are natural supports in the community who may even have their own lived experience and using this as part of how we can take care of our mental health in black community? You know, it was, it was a great part of my childhood going to the beauty shop every day, right? I can even remember times where it was it was almost annoying because, you know, I really wanted to go home, and I was obviously I was younger, so so my, I I couldn't at the time stay home. So I, I spent hours and hours there in the back room and going outside. It was in an urban community at a busy four way, and you know, obviously there was a lot of people, a lot of cars, a lot of traffic, but it was really the most destined place for where the village was. And so I think the, what I really got from this was that you was not too far, you know, blocks away from the nearest hospital and blocks away from the nearest grocery store and the pharmacies. But essentially, people came there for nourishment, for food, for to get their cups filled, to to be heard that was out of money and just needing help. And I was able to see you know, my aunt and those stylists and the one barber there that I looked at as one of my first mentors really step in and help these people. And I thought that was just really fantastic because it was really natural, right? It was like you would see people going through a divorce or a hard time or losing a loved one. And they would come there to their beauty shop and spill out everything about how they were feeling. And they would sometimes be in tears. And I would literally see the stylist and the barber there lift up people. And as a child, it really done something for me. Well, as I began to grow up, I continued to see that village, but I didn't see it I think there was some more a framework, right? I think it was something we could really create. And that's where my innovation took me to starting what it is, is our training, our barber's training that, you know, has an encompassing four tools around, you know, active listening and validation and stigma reduction. But, you know, it, it led me from my childhood, right? Going there after school and just seeing the village communicate. That's so powerful. It- sort of harkens me back to my own time going back to when I was with my, you know, larger family being able to go to the uh, salon. And then when I got engaged, my fiance, actually his mother owned a salon. So what did my fiance do? Wash my hair. Loved it. (laughs) It was like, wash that stress right out of my head by just washing my hair, you know, and even the act of that is an act of, of love and caring and compassion, even if you're not saying anything. But I'm very curious too about when we think of our um, individual stories and our stories of you know struggles and then recovery. What more do you think we could be looking at, especially in the Black community, to support people to reduce 
crisis. I'll just use the word crisis. That's the that's the term of the day. So I don't know. I'll, I'll leave it to either one of you to answer first on that one. You know, I think if I'm hearing you hearing you right, I think the that will allow us to to reduce crisis. I think a, a lot of it starts within. You know, we got to look at how policy is designed and how that can affect marginal and, and disinvested communities. But I think you know, um, inwardly and outwardly, as who we are. I think a part of this is community building and organizing. And so like the work that we've done with Barbers, that's just one example, right? Like we talk about the peer recovery movement and, and how people are using that as a strategy. Some of the most organic ways in our communities really, really powerful. I think that's why I think the power of mentorship is really, really powerful. But I think beyond that, it is going to take, you know, some policy changes. That's going to have to take some systemic changes as well. And I think we're going to have to continue to dive deeper into, um, you know, how our behavior health system is designed all in all. And I always talk about, you know, how the DSMV is really designed and like how does that really accompany, you know, Black Americans? Like, is there something that we really think that we're susceptible to, to being um, showed up for? And, and so I think that those are just a few contextual things that I think we could think through to, to talk about how do we move to making change. Yeah, Lorenzo, I was just thinking when you were talking, I really think it means moving from a traditional crisis system to a community crisis response. And what I mean by that is like in a traditional crisis system, it's very authority centered. It's very deficit based. It's very like the goal of it is to solve the crisis immediately. It almost doesn't matter how it's resolved. It's just that it's very urgent. And the big thing is it really doesn't take into account someone's perspective. Like, so if I'm in a crisis, it's like, let's figure out how to help Kalechi without her being part of the conversation because she no longer can be part of the conversation. And it's really a narrow view of crisis factors. And it's just, it's really focused on let's do this really quickly. So that's what I believe like the traditional crisis intervention system is. But if we move to a community crisis response, I mean, I really believe it would be person-centered and strength-based, so, right? And the goal would be to prioritize the safety and health of the person in crisis. You know, and the uh, peer community say nothing about us without us. And then I think in the crisis conversation, it's like, oh, well, now you're in crisis. So it's all about, it's all without you. And so I think if we were to have a community-based crisis response, it's going to be like more of a holistic view of crisis factors. And the goal would be that you have a positive outcome, not that it's just, oh, that we stopped the crisis because we took you away. Like, is the crisis really over if you're away? Well, I mean, something's over. So, I mean, when I think about it, as you're just building on what you're saying, I think it's like, how do we shift into more of a community framework? Yeah, I love that. I've been thinking a lot about what is the community's responsibility to help take care of the community? (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like we, we put it on some system to take care of the community. And then sometimes we throw up our hands and say, well, that's the the system's responsibility. But I do think um, there's something about that, that still exists in the black community, maybe in a little bit different form than when I was growing up, my neighbor could scold me if they saw me doing something wrong, right? They were they were as good as my mama, right? <laughs> like, like if they saw me doing something that, I, that they knew I wasn't supposed to do, they actually had permission to say, yeah, no, come on, don't do that. Or they saw me out and I needed a little bit of help. Well, come on over, come on over to our house. And of course the neighbor was Aunt Susie or uncle so-and-so or cousin blah, blah, blah. Um, and so we did take care of one another. I don't know what's happened. Some of that has shifted a little bit. I, I think also it's like, how do we 
even understand um, a mental health crisis. You know, you're talking about creating a community system or thinking about the community as the system and the person as the expert. How do we slow down time because we're rushing, right? Solve the, solve the crisis, solve it immediately. And you need time, especially if somebody um, needs a little bit more time to be able to articulate what they need, needs to calm down or needs to talk to somebody that they really trust. How do we create those opportunities, do you think? Lorenzo, you're doing this work in the barbershop, you know, a barber's learning kind of how to either refer or provide space for people. How does that work? One thing that I like that um, Kalichi talked about was we really have to transform the traditional system of how care has looked. And so what I believe is personally, physicians and clinicians will not be the reason that the crisis is stopped in our general health care that I really believe the recovery movement and, you know, everyday folks like barbers and people that work at bars and athletic tech coaches, I, I, I really believe the power is within the everyday person. Now, I do believe there are certain circumstances that require a certain level of treatment and uh, attention right now. I think that's appropriate for those folks who have invested that time to have that credibility. But I, I, I also believe that we have to move to a place of, of innovation. And I think we have to start to kind of press along that. But I, I think in, in, in standing to that, I think we also have to get local leaders that have influence and power at the local, state and federal level to believe that that is true as well. So I think that the work that we're doing is really powerful, but until we're able to really see that barber commissions can ingrain this curriculum across the country, right? And that, you know, the way that barber schools can can use this as an opportunity to to reach more people, you know, in communities. And, and so I think that, you know, we, we also had to think about those levels of change and I think that's that's going to be really, really important. And so in, in my next phase of leadership is one of my goals is to to how do we you know really take some of the work that we've done and translate it to, to real change, um, whether that's through partnership with other advocacy groups, whether there's just other strategies around really moving the needle um, so that it can be sustainable over time. I would. Can I add to that? Uh, you just made me think about. So in California, we have um, the California Reducing Disparities Project. And what they've created is community-defined evidence-based practices. And these are culturally responsive programs that are all across California. And they do deal with mental health. So what the challenge is, is they usually get prevention and early intervention or stigma reduction funding. They don't get like your, they don't get funding that is actually more focused on like, okay, what happens if someone's in a crisis? But what I've seen over the years as I've been working with these communities is that because these community-based organizations are in the community and consistent, people in a crisis keep going to them. And so if people are gonna keep going to them anyways because they're trusted and they're trying to do whatever they can, why don't we actually fund them in a way that makes sense? Fund them in a way so they can do the work they're already doing, but also strengthen the work they're doing, right? If you want to add a treatment provider who, if someone was like escalating, they could be from your cultural community and also there at that grassroots organization. But instead of trying to get people into a system where there's so much stigma and they don't want to ever be in that system, meet them where they're already going. If they're going to the barbershop, great. If they're going to this community event, 
amazing. Let me tell, let me hand a flyer out, join us. Let's have a conversation. And they're doing things like art and dance. It's not just, you know, it's things that feel good to black people, right? I want to feel good. They're talking about black joy and like, we're going to probably play some Lizzo. Like I want to be in that space. And I'm not, I'm not you, you know, no one's saying like, let's talk about mental health today. Um, but it is impacting our mental health. And when someone's in a crisis, they are already talking to those folks. So if we could actually appropriately fund and find a way and I'm talking about like grassroots organizations like sometimes they get these tiny little contracts and they might get funded like nine months later and they they can't sustain on that so I mean consistent appropriate funding and train them for crisis in a way that's culturally responsive because they're already doing it like let's make it less less complicated you know yeah exactly I mean I keep saying that you know to make a dent in equity we have to also think about building wealth. When I say building wealth, it's um, creating opportunities for small community-based organizations to have sustainable funding in order to really do the work rather than doing the work of trying to raise money all the time. <laughs> right? Um, so that I think that's the yeah, exactly. That's so, so, so important. And, and, I, and I love the idea of thinking about what is helpful for our mental health is not always talking about, well, let's talk about what's helpful for our mental health dance, walking, spirituality, connecting with others, community involvement. So um, I know, Lorenzo, you've been doing some work to uh, help get the word out about um, 988. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about how you all are getting the word out and what things you think are promising and what things you think still need to be done? Yeah, well, you know, I, I tell you, um, someone working in the field of, you know, the mental health, behavior health field, you know, roughly 14 years now, and, you know, I like to say that I, I do think we've come a long way, to be honest. Um, I have some concerns about 988, and I believe particularly for the Black community, because I don't think it's really registering with the Black community as much as we think it may be. And I also think in certain parts of the country, there's going to have to be a lot of literacy to bring people up to speed. And so I'm just going to be honest, as I'm thinking about, you know, right now we're, we're still trying to convince you know, black men to, to go and get, you know, regular physical health checkups and, you know, obviously, you know, decrease crime and some of these, you know, domestic violence, some of these more macro things. But then now we got to start thinking through 988, which is a very viable tool. But I believe that there is going to have to be, um, you know, the work that we do, I think it's going to be more people that provide this these services and it's going to take more than us. So we won't be the ones that will ultimately it's going to really take a unifying approach. And that's what I really appreciate about your platform, Kira, is that you're thinking about how people from across the country, people within California can even do this community building work to really help try to help our community in the best way. But I think literacy and language is going to be two that I lean on for my concerns labeled 988, you know, and that means just getting people to understand the education around it, why is it important, um, and really getting the word out. And right now, ensuring that, you know, I know that there are some media that are really, you know, talking about 988, but I think that there's also going to be some massive campaigns and, and some more things really put into awareness around it. So even from, you know, I don't, I don't know how the schools are going to approach this, right? So I think that's that's something we got to think about is how they're going to communicate this to young people and how will that be communicated to families. And so I think that, um, and, you know, also thinking about our more middle-sized cities, you know, um, southern cities 
um, that may not be as advanced when it comes to some of these technologies and more, um, you know, I'm, I'm from a city, Little Rock, where we're not as forward as a city like Atlanta, Georgia. So, you know, it makes me think about how they perceive 98 and what would they really look like. And so I think that we just got a, um, we got a long way to go. And I think we just got to be hopeful and optimistic that change will come. And if everybody does their part, that, you know, we'll make it to our destination at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree with you that there is literacy and language issues and education issues. I also think that I'm not really clear how Black folks have been involved at the um, their local county or state level in the implementation process uh, to ensure that whoever's answering the phone can provide uh, the support in culturally and linguistically aligned ways. We don't want to be code switching when we're on the phone under a crisis. We just want to be able to say what we got to say. And then also, what is the response going to be? How do we understand that? Where is it coming from? That kind of stuff. So I, I think there's literacy, language, also participation. Um, I don't know. What else, Kalechi? I'm sure there are other things. Yeah, I mean, I think we just also need to ground that like 988 is one of the best opportunities to separate crisis intervention from policing. And what I'm concerned about is that a lot of places are actually linking them closer when really the goal, especially for Black communities, that we're separating those responses. So I think there's also like one to your point of how grounded or how centered were Black and Brown folks in development or implementation of this? And where can counties actually bring folks on as this is going on? Because it, it feels like it's, it's moving really quickly, but uh, you know, a part of me is like, okay, wait, I have questions. Like I see lots of concerns from my community about, well, is there gonna be geolocation? Um, what if I just want crisis support, but I don't want law enforcement involvement? Are they gonna connect the two? And you know, I just think clarity about how is, how is this actually gonna be implemented? Confusion about, is this suicide prevention hotline just a shorter number? Like, what do you actually get when you call? And, and are these community, like, are we ready for this intake of calls? Like, have we actually prepared folks? And so, I mean, I think those are some of the questions I have, but it's always been, when I first heard about it, I was like, what a dream. Wouldn't it be amazing if actually peers could come out and respond to a crisis? Like, different, like, I don't know, maybe like peers, promotores, like, you know, folks could come out and actually like be with someone. I still think there's an amazing opportunity and I'm not sure how it's going to be implemented. We have 58 counties. Is 988 going to look different in each county um, potentially? So I, I think it's a great opportunity, but I, I have concerns about like, are we actually separating the systems that, you know, the intention of what we were, we were creating this alternative to um, 911. So are we actually creating an alternative? That's really yeah. been my big question. I love, I love that everything is framed as a, okay, this is a great opportunity. And <laughs> here are all the questions we have, which I think is exactly the questions I'm hearing both in California and, and more broadly, and especially for communities of color, because 988 being um, discussed as the new 911 for mental health, which I have heard, is actually very scary to the Black community. I don't want 911. Now, I also want to say that 911 is not always police. 911 is also EMTs. 911 is also fire department. So I think that also is what is it that we're really communicating? So 988 
And, and how do we separate out the policing part of 911 from the equation, which is going to be so critically important for the Black community? So it's not easy to say 988 is now the new number, so you don't have to call 911. I don't, I don't even know what should be communicated, but wouldn't it be cool if they brought a bunch of people with lived experience, Black and Brown people who were disproportionately treated by, you know, uh, law enforcement to come together and say, this is how it would be really helpful for us for us to hear about and talk about 988. But I think we've talked about some really, really important things. So community, moving things to the community and creating opportunities for the community to be healers for the community, especially related to uh, our, our Black mental health. Communication, communication strategies, uh, sharing information, I could go on and on to sort of, you know, summarize some of the things that we've talked about. But what I'd really like to do is um, let you all have sort of the last word here. So I think I will turn to, I keep turning to Kalechi first. So I will do that because I see you kind of on to my left. Um, so Kalechi, do you have any um, last words for the good of the whole, as we say? I think I would leave with that, like culture is health. And so how do we recenter Blackness? How do we include lived experience? How do we really incorporate these things that I mean we want crisis response that is going to actually help someone? No one, no one calls that number and wants a lethal outcome. So really, this is such an important opportunity to do something different. Everyone is fighting for something different. So bring back our voices in the delivery and help fund this so it's successful. Great. Lorenzo. Beautifully said. No, very, very. Uh, I, I think the the one thing that I can leave with is just ensuring that we can continue to reimagine the way that we want the world to look. Um, I, I believe in the power of not only energy and thought, but I also believe in the in the power of collaboration. And I, but I believe it starts with with our with an idea, and it, it also moves with action. And so, I just um, leave everyone hopeful to continue to reimagine how they want this world to look. I know a world that the Confess Project sees as a world with, that has no barriers to stigma and shame. And that's one of our biggest North Stars. And so I mean, um, we recently have even reintegrated that our promise is that, you know, all Black men and boys um, have a positive well-being and a prosperity to life. And so uh, as we begin to reimagine what our North Star is and to even make that clear, that we make that clear about also how, you know, 988 plays into this and how we can begin to think about those who have been jailed with a mental health issue and, and, and like all of these different deliberations that have caused such a huge burden to our community. So um, I just want to leave folks with just a, a positive tip around that and um, really grateful again to share and to be a part of this today. Thank you. Thank you so much to both of you. Oh, I'm sorry, Kalechi, do you have something? I want to make sure. Yes, I did. Well, Lorenzo just made me think of this quote um, because of how you were speaking. Uh, my friend Quasi Chapin says, we know the nightmare, but what is the dream? So what is the dream, right? As you were talking about reimagining, I'm like, what is the dream? We don't have to live in these. We can, we can create something beautiful. So I just want to share that piece. Wow, really beautiful. Yeah, very powerful. And I, I feel like the, the dream has been part of the dream has been having this conversation and what's been also hopeful and I hope it's hopeful for others is seeing the work that both uh, you know Lorenzo and Kalechi are doing among amongst others so that y'all don't feel alone we're not alone 
we're not alone. And so that to me also is quite hopeful. So I want to thank um, Colette Bozo and Lorenzo Lewis for being with me today on Unapologetically Black Unicorns, hashtag Black Mental Health, and make sure to join in next time. Thank you.